pilots playing tales. Sounds like a drag. Musings are a worry. They lead to humming and whoring, beard scratching and brow furrowing. Whilst much contemplation, rumination and cogitation takes place. So it was when I recently glimpsed a photograph of the Convair 990A, Coronado. Not a well-known airliner. It was the successor to the more successful, and that's not saying much, Convair 880. A little late to the game, Convair was building four-engined airliners to compete with the Boeing 707 and DC-8. Their design didn't win in many areas. It was smaller than its competitors and more expensive to operate. But at the time, Convair thought that it was going to be all about speed. They were going to build the fastest subsonic airliner in the world and they would get their passengers coast-to-coast in more luxury and quicker than anyone else. They were going to corner the market. Just how were they going to achieve this? Well, first of all, they were going to employ turbofan engines that were going to increase the thrust. But interestingly, the fans would be at the back of the engine, sucking air through the bypass area rather than blowing it. And they were going to employ anti-shock bodies on the upper trailing edge of the wings. It was these large devices that had caught my attention when I first saw the photo. At first I thought they might be four additional engines, which would have made it an eight-engined airliner. Cool! But then I realised I couldn't see a jet pipe or intake, so I wondered if they were piston engines or turboprops, and I just couldn't see the pusher propellers. Not quite so cool, and a bit like an airliner version of the Convair B-36 Peacemaker, with six turning and four burning, or more commonly, two turning, two burning, two smoking, two choking, and two more unaccounted for. So not engines, but aerodynamic devices that also conveniently held fuel. And what's more, the same principle is still used today. The big pods on the 990A don't look anything like modern anti-shock devices, but they served the same purpose. They reduced drag. Almost as big as the engine pods, these sleek-looking bubbles started from about one-third of the cord, beginning at a point and growing in girth while they stretched back well beyond the trailing edge until they shrank back into another point. The big question was, did they work, and if so, how? And the answer is firstly, yes, they did work. It is generally agreed that the Convair 990, particularly the 990A version, was the fastest of the subsonic airliners. In May 1961, the original 990 prototype set a record of Mach 0.97 in level flight, at an altitude of 22,500 feet, equivalent to a true airspeed of 675 miles an hour, which, for those of you who bimble around in an aircraft, that's 586.6 knots. 
990A, which had the four-wing-mounted anti-shock body speed capsules and substantial streamlining of the engine pylon wing interface, improved on that original speed, reaching 700 miles an hour, 608 knots. Convair's sales, publicity and enthusiasm department were unbelievably enthusiastic about the new aircraft. Let's go over to the flight line and talk to the experts about it. This is Kelly Owen, and Kelly is American's acceptance pilot at Convair. Kelly, how is the 990 business? You can see for yourself, Larry, it's a fine airplane. Well, I hear it's a good flying airplane, too. That's true. We're very enthusiastic about it. Are there any special features that you're particularly enthusiastic about, Kelly? Larry, there are many, one of which the speed stability system we're very enthusiastic about. So the next time one of you airline pilots comes home in a strong jet stream and sees 600 knots ground speed clock up, please don't stick it on Facebook. The Convair 990A could do it way before you were a twinkle in your parents' eyes and in still air. Sadly, the 990 and 990A didn't sell well and lost the company a shedload of money. It appears that getting into L.A. 45 minutes earlier than your competitors wasn't worth the expense and people really didn't care that much, but for me that wasn't the point. The point was, what was in those wacky pods that allowed this airliner to crack along so close to the speed of sound? The answer was indeed the funny pods at the back of the wing, but to explain why, I'm going to have to put my fast jet QFI hat on and explain a bit about high-speed flight. Let me start by reminding you that sound comes to an ear near you via the medium of air, which is why, to quote the film Alien, in space no one can hear you scream. When something makes a noise, it moves air in the form of a wave, which spreads out like the ripples on a pond. The ripples move quite fast, but the speed is dependent on the density and temperature of the air, amongst other things. At sea level, and at 21 degrees centigrade, that's 70 Fahrenheit, they reach 770 miles an hour, that's 669 knots. If the thing making that noise is an aircraft that can go quite fast, the sound waves it creates will only run ahead of the aircraft at the speed of sound minus the speed of the aircraft. As the speed of the aircraft increases towards the speed of sound, the distance between it and the sound waves in front gets smaller and they start to bunch up. Continue to accelerate to the speed of sound and eventually the sound waves merge together into what is termed a Mach wave. The Mach wave marks the limit of the influence of the aircraft and all of the sound, all of the pressure waves from it have now formed into a single wave at right angles to the direction of travel. This is termed a normal Mach wave. That's normal as in at right angles. If the aircraft were to accelerate more, the normal Mach wave would change shape into a cone but for today's tale, we don't need to go that fast. If someone's standing around minding their own business and they happen to be under your aircraft as it does this trick of creating a Mach wave, 
they would hear nothing of your approach until the moment you passed overhead, when all the collected sound generated by your machine would hit them in one go. Great for surprising your mates and putting up as a YouTube video. As an aside, in supersonic flight there are in fact two waves created. One is the bow shock wave that, because of the local changes in air temperature caused by the passage of the aircraft, sits a little way ahead, and the other is the shock wave from the wings and fuselage, etc. This gives the distinctive double boom. We should perhaps consider the nature of a shock wave before we go about frightening suckers to put on YouTube. A shock wave is a very narrow region, about one ten thousandth of an inch, or 0.00254 of a millimetre, and it represents a high state of compression. Remembering that noise are just pressure waves, and a shock wave is a bunch of those put together, it's not surprising that it sounds loud and startling, something similar to a thunderclap or explosion. The crack of a bullwhip is a miniature version, since the fast-moving tip of the whip exceeds the speed of sound, creating the noise. The strongest sonic boom ever recorded was 7,000 pascals, that's 144 pounds per square foot, and it didn't cause injury to the researchers who were exposed to it. The boom was produced by an F-4 Phantom flying just above the speed of sound at an altitude of 100 feet, that's about 30 metres. I digress. We need to get back to our Convair 990A, or more accurately, its anti-shock bodies. The big problem with a shock wave is the drag it produces, particularly in the transonic region, that's Mach 0.8 to Mach 1.2. When shock waves form, they produce drag. The enormous pressure change that occurs in a shock wave creates an extreme amount of drag that rises the closer the aircraft gets to Mach 1. It's not just the actual speed of the aircraft as a whole that we're concerned about, and without going into the whole how-does-an-aeroplane-fly thing, you need to know that curved surfaces on an aircraft will accelerate the air travelling over them. So whilst we might be flying along at only 80% of the speed of sound, Mach decimal 8, part of the airframe, say the top of the canopy or the cockpit, the upper surface of the wings, uh, tailplanes, rudder, etc., might well have air going over them, that might be closer to Mach 1 and producing shock waves. The point at which these shock waves start to form is known as the critical Mach number, or just M-crit, and is defined as the lowest Mach number at which airflow over some point of the aircraft reaches the speed of sound. When I was still flying the A340, this was an easy thing to demonstrate. From an economical cruise speed of, say, around Mach decimal 8.2, the flight management computer might show me that I'm landing with 10 tonnes of fuel. If I selected a higher speed, say Mach 0.84, the wave drag would increase, and the engines would have to work harder. Now I could see that my landing fuel was going down to, say, 5 tonnes. Crank up the speed to Mach decimal 8.6, 
and wave drag would be really getting hold and the fuel would drop into minus figures. That increase of speed by only 4% could result in a dramatic increase in drag and a corresponding climb in fuel consumption. Delaying the arrival of MCRIT, the start of Mac Drag Rise, became the holy grail of early jet airliner design, and there were several key features that manufacturers used to achieve their goal. The first has become so common that we tend to ignore it. Wing sweep. On a swept wing, only the component of the airflow to pass over that is at right angles to the leading edge affects the wing. This means that the critical drag rise is a function of the cosine of the angle of sweep. In theory, therefore, it's quite possible for the airflow over the wing to have reached the speed for M crit, but the flow at right angles to the leading edge is still subsonic, delaying the drag rise. This is shown by the formula Mach critical drag rise swept equals Mach critical drag rise straight over the cosine of the wing sweep. Of course, the wing need not be swept when it's possible to build a wing that's extremely thin. This solution was used on a number of designs, uh, beginning with the Bell X-1, but this isn't a practical solution for an airliner. Having considered wing sweep and decided that it alone wouldn't do the job, the designers at Convair moved on to the Whitcomb area rule. The concept was first discovered by Otto Frenzy, who was working for Junkers in 1944 when he filed the patent. Several others came close to developing a similar theory, particularly Dietrich Kuschmann, who went on to work in the UK designing Concorde. The brilliant American designer Richard Whitcomb, after whom the rule is named, independently discovered the rule in 1952 whilst researching shockwaves at Langley. He concluded that, and I quote, disturbances and shockwaves are simply a function of the longitudinal variation of the cross-sectional area. Put more simply, if you salami slice an aircraft from nose to tail and measure the area of each slice, it should increase and then decrease smoothly without any significant bumps on the way. Obviously, the wings can't be done away with, but the increase in area should be progressive and as much as possible reduced by, for example, narrowing the fuselage where the wings are fitted. When his ideas were applied to the prototype YF-102 Delta Dagger, for example, an aircraft that couldn't exceed the speed of sound in level flight suddenly could. The influence can be seen in many subsequent designs, such as the Thunder Chief, the Hustler, the F-4 Phantom and the B-1B Lancer. Even though these are supersonic military aircraft, the principle of area rule applies equally to airliners travelling at transonic speeds. In the case of the Convair 990A, an examination of the cross-sectional areas revealed that there was a sharp reduction in the cross-sectional area around the trailing edge of the wing, which was causing significant wave drag. This was smoothed out by the addition of the anti-shock bodies, which also provided a convenient place to store extra fuel. But where are the shock bodies on modern airliners, you might ask? Has the rule changed? 
Not at all, but modern designers have found more elegant ways to smooth out their cross-sectional areas and obey area rule and achieve something close to the Sears hack body, the shape which allows a minimum wave drag for a given length and volume. Next time you're doing a bit of plane spotting, take a look at the large flat tracks on many airliners. These large fairings are found on the trailing edges of the wing and house the mechanism for deploying the flaps. They could be designed much smaller, but are deliberately created large and long to improve area rule. And the Airbus A340 is a classic example, but this trick is also used on such aircraft as the A310, the Boeing 747 and the Airbus A380, to name just a few. Whitcomb also found that a large bulge above the forward fuselage also improved transonic aerodynamics, a feature that the 747 also employs, not just for area rule, but also to allow the captain to sit on his wallet. Another example were the Cushman carrots, pods that extend behind the trailing edge of the Handley Page Victor, one of Britain's V-bombers. And if we look across the old Iron Curtain, we can see that Soviet designs took advantage of area rule as well. The Tupolev Tu-95 Bear has very large pods extending behind the inboard engines well beyond the wing trailing edge. These house the main undercarriage but also serve as area rule pods. The Tu-16 Badger does the same. Sadly, for the Convair 990, a bit of exotic area rule didn't fix all the problems even though they called them speed pods and made them a publicity feature. They always seem to be surrounded by pods. Uh, these pods, Larry, stamped this the Convair 990 airplane. No other airplane can make this claim. Well, what is the main job of the speed pods? Well, the important function, of course, is to make the airplane go faster. And it's a real exciting and effective application of the same area rule used on fighter airplanes. Is and it's cut down drag or have an effect like that? Yes, you see, on even on an airplane such as... It had been American Airlines who wanted the aircraft, but although they could have boasted of having the fastest airliner in the West, they told Convair that the aircraft didn't meet the promised specifications. When the line shut down, they had produced only 37 990s, and it led Convair's parent company, General Dynamics, to suffer what was at the time one of the largest corporate losses in history. If you enjoyed this story, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.